0: Hey everybody, we have a great, great, great podcast for you today. This is absolutely, well, what's that verse where it says the the first shall be last, the last shall be first? I don't know how that applies to this, but we've saved the best for last. This is our final podcast of
1: 2019.
0: Yep. (laughs) And we saved the best for last, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> yes. To say the least. You and I have been grinning for the last hour and a well, half. Well, I
1: don't want to say that because we interviewed some of my friends before and they're <laughs> going to get mad at me. That's right.
0: They will. Uh, they understand. Uh, actually, you know, this is somebody that we have been talking about since have, we started the podcast. Since we started the podcast. Yeah. Like, you know, 65, however <laughs> whatever we're on, whatever number we're on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, we got that coming up and, um, and you're going to just want to listen again and again and again and share with your friends and all that. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, but hey, what do you know, man?
1: Hey, did you know that in 1788 there was a doctor's riot in New York City? <laughs> no. That was, uh, <laughs> it led to wait, 20 people dying. A
0: doctor's riot? Yeah.
1: Okay. Oh. So they used to, back in the day, they would, uh, medical schools would just take dead bodies out of the ground, right? To zoom and do cadavers? Te- ca- well yeah, except cadavers were like donated. Oh. This is 1788 and back oh. in the 1700s they'd just take him you know, <laughs> Hey, we'll just take him <laughs> He's dead. What does he care? Yeah. yeah. Um so there's this guy in April 1788, a group of kids were playing outside one New York hospital. Yeah. They're right next to a, this room where there's a this student like making, you know, doing Work, working, working on a body. Working, yeah. And so the student pulled up this arm and he waved it at the kid, and he said, "This is your mom's arm." No, he did. Yeah. So the kid ran home. This was like a problem that they had been working with laws to pass to like not do this, but the doctors like whatever. We need bodies. And they just kept doing it. So the kid went home, ran to the dad, and they this mob <laughs> approached and just ran to the thing. They said there was two thousand people that <laughs> just God. ran to these hospitals, all the hospitals. In New York City, they just ran and started... Oh, the doctors started hiding. And it said... Oh, my gosh. uh So they ins- they, they, as they assembled in front of the courthouse and threw rocks, militia and cavalry were called in to <laughs> repel them. The riot lasted a few days, ceasing when Governor Clinton sent the militia to patrol the streets until a calm environment was, was ensued. At least three rioters... And three militiamen died in the confrontation. Wow. Some estimate up to 20 dead. And uh, the well, protesters also destroyed all available human specimens. So they,
0: so the doctors didn't <laughs> have any bodies. Yeah. Well, they had the new dead. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the new 20 people. Yeah. Uh, dude, that's crazy, dude. Yeah. So well, the only thing I would say is like, was that kid's mom really dead? And I think it didn't save. I think uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like what that's messed up you yeah. take it was mom? just bad uh i okay. think
1: i don't think the kid that the student would have known that the kid right mom was dead
0: yeah right how would yeah. he know so that's funny though yeah oh god <laughs> <Just laughs> so the there's riot. a
1: there's a did you know did you know you had a couple of riots that started in history one from a fart one from a fart killed, a, <laughs> one from killed, a... killed thousands of people that's right and then there's one that started with mooning that's right killed
0: that's right i forgot about that he mooned them yeah that's crazy Oh man. So
1: that's good. All right. Well, how about before we get into this, we'll explain what we're going to do for people that may be
0: yeah. listening for the first time. Because we have some new listeners. I'm going to
1: assume. So
0: I'll just start the music. How's okay. It?
1: So we've been going through uh, since we are absolutely 100% super duper pro life. Right. We believe that life begins prior to conception. That's right. In the mind of God. That's right. So it's not even. If or when, you know, when the... Sp- the prophet Jeremiah spoke. No, I was going to say oh, it's oh. not just when the uh, spark of... Conception. W- Conception. I was trying to think of a, a, a way of not saying what Can happens. I- the physical, when, you know, when it's conceived, the baby's, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Right. It's not at that point. It's prior because it's in the mind of God. Yeah. Anyway, so we go, we've go. we been going through each week of the podcast and going through each week of the pregnancy just kind of... So we're on week 30. Baby is as big as a bunch of
0: broccoli. That's what it says. <laughs> so it went from cauliflower to broccoli, because yeah. last week it was cauliflower.
1: It's true. It says uh, wrinkly baby brain. <laughs> the surface of your baby's brains begins to wrinkle. <laughs> the wrinkles are called conv- convolutions so that it can hold more brain cells. Sweet. Baby's hands are fully formed, and her fingernails are growing. In ultrasound, you may catch baby grabbing her foot. And they're, they're missing a. Uh, our bad is? grammar uh, yeah well and uh, it says your baby's quarters keep getting tighter because the baby's growing yeah you'll still feel movement every day don't forget to count those kicks count them all right yeah so we're in uh, seven months of the pregnancy well into the third trimester and as a reminder you just we went through some of the brief things of what the baby can do at this point in time and as a reminder as always, Democrats still want to be able to kill that. They want to be able to pull that baby out, rip it piece by piece, That's right. and end its life. So,
0: That's right. That's what they want to do. They want to, Liberals want to do that. They do. But we're pro-life. We will protect those unborn. Yeah. And this is our way of remembering at every stage of the pregnancy. Yeah. It's yeah. alive.
1: It's a baby. It's been alive since the beginning.
0: Live human being. Anyways, there you go. That's our, that's that. Um, Dude, so without further ado, (laughs) let's just jump into this because we have, you and I have most sought after guest prayed for. This is an answer to prayer. We have Dr. Michael Heiser from the famed book, The Unseen Realm. And the Naked Bible Podcast. And the Naked Bible Podcast, which you need to go check out. So sit back, grab a coffee, get a notepad, Write notes (laughs) and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War podcast. Well, Warriors, we have an awesome guest on the podcast today. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce to you our Dr. Michael Heiser. He is a PhD from University of Wisconsin, Madison, and he also has a master's in Hebrew and Semitic Studies and a second master's in ancient history. He has several podcasts the Naked Bible Podcast, the Paranormal Podcast, and on YouTube. You can find him on French Pop321. He's the author of several books, including The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things, Angels, What the Bible Really Says About Heavenly Hosts, and his most popular book to date is The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Dr. Heiser, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me on.
0: Man, we have, uh, this is exciting for us. We, when I heard of you from our friends over at Canary Cry. And mm-hmm. um and then I then I found Naked Bible podcast and I literally consumed from the beginning uh, the podcast <laughs> and uh, it was like going through Bible college all over again or something you know just uh, learning stuff so uh, it's just I'm an exegetical guy I love the Bible ex- mm-hmm. exegetically and so it was so fun to go through entire books. Uh, being picked apart the way that, that uh, you were doing it. So um, I've just been so blessed by everything that you've been doing. And then the Unseen Realm book itself had a major impact on me personally. So I just want to say thank you. And uh, yeah,
2: Well, you, you're welcome. We, we do it so that it's useful. We try to produce useful things. <laughs>
0: well, it's certainly useful. And it's had some uh, really amazing conversations that have been stirred, um, i I think the work that you're doing with the unseen realm in particular that, that it's produced is a, a a way for people to look at certain topics in the Bible and issues in the Bible that have not been taught um, in mainstream mm-hmm. for so long uh, in, mm-hmm. in particular um, Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32 so yeah mm-hmm. um, psalm 82 i'll just read it out of the esv it just says god has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment and uh that i remember coming across this verse when i was a new believer and wondering like who are these little g gods and other gods what are they? i thought god was only god (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and no one could explain that to me so maybe we could just start there uh in this process.
2: Yeah. What? Yeah. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you ran into what most people run into. Oh, the gods there are just people, mm-hmm. or they're idols, mm-hmm. or something. You know, and, and that that works until you're until you hit Psalm 89. You know, <laughs> psalms later. <laughs> you know, actually, I'm I'm being kind. I don't think it works at all in Psalm 82, <laughs> but it, it gets destroyed in Psalm 89 because there you have the same you know council language, uh, the same you know Hebrew terminology. As you get in Psalm 82 and they the, you know, the, the, the members of God's council are in the skies. Well, last time I checked, there weren't a bunch of idols floating around in the skies and there weren't a bunch of Jewish elders floating around in the <laughs> skies either. You know, it just it doesn't, it makes no sense at all, you know, but, but this is, it sounds absurd, but, and it is absurd, but it's actually the dominant view. Uh, Within uh, Judaism and Christianity is that the the gods of Psalm 82 are just people Mm. and you know, we we can understand why That choice is made. It's because you know, we are when we see the word, you know, G-O-D the letters G-O-D we just default because we're Westerners and we have the Judeo-Christian tradition and I mean tradition not not the text but Mm -hmm. tradition in our heads that when we see the letters G-O and D, we presume that those letters point to a unique set of attributes that is possessed only by one, you know, entity, one being. And in, again, that, that's just the way we, we are traditionally taught, but the biblical writer did not use the word Elohim that way. And here in Psalm 82, 1, you have Elohim twice. Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. God, capital G-O-D, takes his stand or his place in the divine council. We know it's one there because the verb Nitzav is a singular participle. So we we capitalize it G-O-D in our translation appropriately. And then the next line is Bekherav Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Can't be in the midst of one, it's a group here. And we know when we go down to verse six, same language is there, the speaker, God, from the first verse says I said to you Elohim you plural pronoun are God's Elohim sons plural of the Most High all of you uh, we know who the Most High is That's not a brain teaser mm-hmm. so these are sons of God called Elohim that's why when you go over to Psalm 89 the sons of God are there in a council and they're in the skies so it doesn't make any sense to have human beings be the referent of Elohim here. But we're we're just trained by our culture, our tradition, to find that really uncomfortable because when we see the letters G-O and D, we think of a unique set of attributes. But the biblical writer does not use Elohim that way. You say, well, how do we know, Mike? Well, we look up all the places, there's over 2,000 of them where Elohim is used in the Hebrew Bible, and it's actually used of five or six different things other than the God of Israel. So that alone tells you. Mm that it's not about a unique set of attributes. Because if it right. was, the biblical writers wouldn't do that. <laughs> because their theology is very clear. They they deny certain attributes to all other Elohim, and they affirm certain attributes to only one, Yahweh, the God of Israel, mm. scattered throughout scripture. This is the portrait you get. So our theology of the uniqueness of the God of the Bible, I, I refer to him as species unique. <laughs> That's good theology. It's correct. It's text-driven, but it doesn't derive from the term Elohim. It derives from what is said about one particular Elohim. That's where we get that theology. So what Psalm 82 tells us is that there's a populated spiritual world. You know, in the skies, in the heavens This is where God was is presumed to have lived Because it's the place where humans don't live In the heavens, okay Very common idea that we still have with us today You know, a, a metaphor, if you will For the spiritual world That world is heavily populated There are lots of Elohim that live there But there's only one That is the God of Israel There's only one that is all the things He is and everyone else is not. So Yahweh of Israel is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, and awesome. Psalm eighty-two reinforces that. And you know, so my view that it, it sounds so simple when you actually think about it, but the problem is nobody thinks about it. <laughs> they just go with tradition. They just knee-jerk reaction. So you know, I, I can walk into a church and say, Hey, you know that you know that Psalm over there that says Yahweh is the God of gods. It means exactly what it says. (laughs) You know, and and, and, I'm I'm used to people looking at me like I have two heads. It 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 doesn't say God's better than idols. It doesn't say God's better than human judges that floater out in space. Mm -hmm. Okay. God, you know, Yahweh is the God of all gods. He is king of the gods, other, you know, other verses say. And these verses mean exactly what they say. The, The biblical writers assumed that the other Elohim, the other gods were real. They were spiritual beings who were lesser. And this is, you know, part of the, you know, the, the old Testament theology of other pantheons and not worshiping other gods and all this sort of stuff, you know, then that's a situation that drives specifically from Deuteronomy 32, which you alluded to earlier. But you know, th- this, this is, when you really think about it, this should, this should be theology 101. Yeah. This is, this is the Shema, the Lord, our God is one. And we worship him alone. He is the one in covenant relationship with us. He is this, he's that. And the other ones are just, you know, Ding- dingle doors, you know, it just, <laughs> you know, it, it, <clears throat> this should be theology 101, but it, it, it's unbelievably foreign mm-hmm. to most Bible readers.
0: So the, on the topic of Elohim, I just want to ask this question because I have uh, heard it taught, and I was actually taught this as well, that in Genesis, the first mention of Elohim is "Let us make man in our image." Um, I, I, I believe is the verse there that it talks about. But it was always used in reference to the Trinity or the Triune God. Is that appropriate, or do you think that's uh, un, not appropriate in that setting?
2: No. The, the The first mention of Elohim in the Hebrew Bible is actually Genesis one one, you know, Barashit bara Elohim oh. in the beginning, or or when God began to create. There's a variety of ways you can translate that. But you're talking about Genesis 1 mm-hmm. with the creation of, of humanity. And no, I don't think that this is the Trinity at all. Um, what, what it is is, you know, we, it's important to look in verse 26, let us create humankind in our image or as our image. I spent a lot of time talking about what the image of God is and is not in the mm-hmm. uh, unseen realm. It's, it's a representative status. Okay. If you think of it as a status or think of it as a verb, you can actually get the idea. We humans were created to image God, Mm. to be God in proxy on this planet. Uh, we are the alone beings who are created with that status and to accomplish that role, that function, God shares his attributes with us. In theology, these are called the communicable attributes. Uh, but the image itself is not one of these attributes it's nothing it's not a quality or a thing put into humans it is by definition to be human Mm. Uh, we are god's representatives so you know god essentially announces this using plural language and then in verse 27 when god actually does the creating it switches back to singular god created humanity in his image he created them uh, you know, it, it goes from plural to singular. And so I spent a lot of time in Unseen Realm talking about this. If we are Orthodox Trinitarians, and, and I am, I'm a normal Trinitarian guy.
1: Mm-hmm. Same here.
2: We believe that the three members of the Trinity are co-eternal. They are co-omniscient. Okay. If they're co-eternal and they're co-omniscient, there's no need for God to announce anything to the other two. Yeah. They already know. Yeah. I mean, as soon as the, as soon as the thought sprang into the mind of God, it's also in their minds. I mean, it, again, it, Orthodox Trinitarianism creates a, actually a problem for itself <laughs> by, by, inserting the Trinity into this passage. Now, you know, you could live with it and, you know, Christians have lived with it for a long time, but if you, if that's your explanation for divine plurality in a lot of other passages, you're going to get in real theological trouble, especially in Psalm 82, where God is berating the other Elohim for being corrupt. (laughs) (laughs) That's not really a good Trinitarian theology there. So, you know, so, you know you go back to Genesis one. Well, what what what's it, again it's simple when you think about it God you know essentially walks into the room these are the members of his heavenly host God is speaking to the members of the heavenly host he says hey I've got a great idea let's create humankind as our imagers mm. okay it was it's the plural of exhortation it's, it's like if I walk into a room and I say hey let's go get pizza but we use my car I pick the pizza place and I drive, but you all get to eat. You all get to participate or enjoy the circumstance in some way. That's what you have in Genesis one. God's telling the lesser members of his heavenly host and we commonly think of them as angels. You can think of them as other Elohim in Psalm 82. Mm -hmm. Elohim just refers to a member of the spiritual world. That's all it means has nothing to do with specific attributes. You know, you, you, God walks in there and says, let's do this. And then when, you know, they're all on board and, and, and you know, there's no opposition. Then in the next verse, God's the one who does the creating. Mm-hmm. But yet there's this plurality. In some way, the humans are also related by virtue of imaging to the members of the heavenly host, that we have the same creator, we're created the same with the same language. You know, how does that work? Mm-hmm. What, what you actually have, if you think of imaging as a status, a representational status, the way the plurality works is that they, God's earlier family, we know that they were around before humans were around. We, le- we learned that from Job 38, 7 and 8. Sons of God were there before the foundations of the world. They represent him in the spiritual world. And we, humans, represent God in the earthly world created for human habitation. It's just different spheres of authority is all it is. Mm-hmm. But the plural, the plural language connects them. It connects heaven and earth, so to speak. It connects God's spiritual family with his earthly family. Mm. It creates a a symbiosis between them that, again, this is a lot of what I do in Unseen Realm, that symbiosis plays out from Genesis through lots of other passages in both good ways and unfortunate ways. So what God wants is he wants a family and he wants, he wants partners, he wants beings like himself to participate with him in doing the things he wants done. God could do everything he wants. He could do everything in the spiritual world. He could do everything in the earthly world, but he creates beings who are his imagers to work for him and with him and even together to do the things that he wants done. That's, that's how Genesis begins. Now we know that doesn't last too long. Right. (laughs) Because part one of the attributes God shares is freedom which, you know, again, God isn't surprised by that. He knows that when he makes this decision to give us freedom, free will, we like to call it, the ability to make an uncoerced decision that, yep, eventually they're going to either make mistakes or they're going to rebel because while they have my, I've shared my attribute with them, they're not me. They lack my perfection, my perfect nature. They will fail and they will rebel. And this is really the backdrop of why there is evil. It's because God decided to have beings like himself be part of reality, both in the spiritual sphere and the human sphere. And we can complain about that, you know, because of pain and suffering and whatnot, but but if we stop and realize, you know, what this tells us about God is that God knowing what our freedom would cost, the destruction, self-destruction, the misery, the sin, the, the suffering, all that, the rebellion, God knowing that all ahead of time, he still would prefer that set of circumstances than to never have us at all. Yeah. And and, and so to me that, that's it's a significant theological statement about the way God looks at humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, the way God loves humanity. Um, so I, I think, you know, we it's fun to do theology, but but we, we need to, you know, really get a grasp on thoughts like that. Right, um and, and realize that you know the, the plurality isn't the threat. The plurality actually works out to, to tell us something about ourselves and the, and what God wants in in, in family terms and partnering terms, and just you know what God is up to. and so we don't need to fear it. we don't need to make it go away. as I've often said,' I'm, I'm no longer going in the business of protecting people from their Bible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's good stuff in there that's really worth thinking about.
0: So when you mentioned the Elohim, and I love mm-hmm. the way that you explain that out, because that's really important for all of us to know. Uh, when we think about the divine counsel, then, that is mentioned that you talk about, mm-hmm. what would be the entities that would be around God? And then the question that automatically went to my mind, which I'm sure other people would be thinking, is why does God need counselors? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, the, let's take the second one first. The short answer is he doesn't.
0: Okay.
2: God needs nothing. He doesn't need a council. Uh, to understand this point, eh, change the question a little bit. Why does God need the church?
0: <laughs>
2: why does God need believers? Well, we have this great commission. We're supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah, I know that. But why does God need that? Why, why, why can't God just decide you know, who, who's, who's saved and who isn't? Could he? Well, sure. You know, God can do anything he wants. That, exactly. But he doesn't choose to do it that way. So God doesn't need a blasted thing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need a counsel, but God chooses to have partners. This is this is just how God likes to do things. He likes to create beings who are like him, who will share the experience with him, both the benefit and the joy and the process. This is just what God likes to do. It's a creative impulse you know it's a, it's a family impulse it's a participatory impulse none of it is necessary god doesn't lack anything so i mean that that's easy i think you know to to, to discern you know once we think about well does god really need us well the answer is no but he's chosen to to have us and, and to use us and make us partners with him so you know that you know that's on the one side, you know, the other side, I think the first part of your question was, was who are they? Is that what, what the yeah. question was? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just, they're members of the heavenly host. They're uh, other Elohim. They're other spiritual beings in, in, in that realm. And then of course on earth, it's human, human beings, you know, one of the, one of the problems that we have in, in uh, sort of Judeo Christian tradition with what we'll loosely call angelology is actually that term angel. If you, I wrote a separate book called Angels, uh, what what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. And in, in the first chapter, I talk about terminology. We have a terminology problem. There are lots of terms used in the Old Testament for members of the heavenly host, and I, I, I put it this way in the chapter: there are essentially three buckets. Okay, there are three semantic fields. You know, to to semantic categories to sound more academic here, but there are three mm-hmm. buckets. Okay. There are terms that are used of the members of the heavenly host to describe what they are by nature. These are ontological terms, words like spirits, holy ones, okay. Terms that describe nature and character. And then there's a second bucket, terms that describe hierarchy, Mm -hmm. like they're bureaucratic terms. This is where you get a phrase like sons of God, Uh, and, and you get other terms of royalty. These are terms drawn from the ancient Near Eastern world of the kingly court. God is king, the language gets transferred over to the heavenly sphere, and, and it works out in certain passages where there are certain terms that just tell you where where a thing is in the pecking order. You know, upper upper tier, lower tier, you know, servant class, you know, something more elite. And, you know, so you have that second bucket. Third bucket are terms that describe specific tasks. And this is actually where the term angel, Hebrew is malach, this is the bucket that that fits into. So, you know, any member of the heavenly host can take a message. That's what Malak means, messenger. Mm-hmm. Takes a message. It doesn't tell you what a thing is, it tells you what a thing does. It doesn't tell you what the member of the heavenly host is by nature, it tells you what he might be doing at any given point. So they're, they're, they're job descriptions. Kerovim, job description, it's a throne guardian. Seraphim job description, throne guardian, one term is drawn from Akkadian, the other term is drawn from Egyptian. But what we do in our Christian tradition, and really throw Judaism in here as well, is we, we smash all of that together into a big ball and call it angel. Mm. Good guy, angel, bad guy, demon. <laughs> and, and, and you know, white hat, black hat, you know, and, and we smash all of them together and, and come up with these simplified, really oversimplified and, and frankly, very imprecise mm-hmm. terms. And then we struggle, you know, with certain passages and certain concepts that that scripture presents to us about the, the heavenly sphere, because we lack, again, the, the precision of the text. We lack the explanatory power of the text, again, taken in its own context in, in, the, in the nuanced terminology.
0: Okay, <laughs> I'm getting, uh, my mind is slowly, uh, it's turning to jello as you're not in a, not in a bad way, in a great way. Uh, sure, uh, <laughs> but um, so when we, so when you think about the,
2: the, it, think, the, think of buckets, there you go, that's right. <laughs> Ontology, hierarchy, and job description.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've heard of like warring angels and, uh, you know, obviously messengers, you know, um, the, these are the, tasks, right? Sometimes we're soldiers. Sometimes we're delivery boys. You know, <laughs> <these are>
2: tasks.
0: <laughs> that's right. So, okay, so you mentioned demons. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a can of worms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is because, again, we, we, we conflate all the of the terminology from the Old Testament, smash it into one, and just demon, bad. You know, it's kind of like the political orange man, bad, you know, right. <laughs> demon guy bad. You know? <laughs> and that's just a black hat bad. Um, you know what the reality is, is that, is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis describe three supernatural mm-hmm. and human rebellions. And, and those three rebellions give us the cast of characters, that are in opposition to God, not just in terms of, the, you know, the, the human problem, you know, how this affects human beings who become idolaters and, and whatnot. But in the spiritual world, there's a cast of characters that derive, you know, from different events. So we've got Genesis 3, we've got the, the Satan figure. Uh, he's not, not called Satan in the—the you know, the serpent isn't called Satan in the Old Testament, but there is nevertheless an, an original arch-rival idea. Uh, you know, arch opposer, the, the the one who essentially messed things up from the beginning, that whole idea. Mm-hmm. So there, that that's one figure, one character. And then you have the Genesis six, one through four episode, sons of God, who are supernatural beings. Uh, if, if you care about um, the New Testament, you more or less have to affirm that or else you have to be ready to say Peter and Jude were wrong. Right. And who are you to say that, to be blunt about it? <laughs> Um, you know, angels that sin plural. There is no plural angelic sin, supernatural rebellion. You know that that that's associated with the flood. Because Peter talks about Noah. Mm-hmm. Okay, there there isn't any other one except Genesis six one through four. And mm-hmm. again, I spent a lot of time in in several of my books talking about this. Okay. So those that's a second group, second set of rebels. They are punished, sent to the abyss in all of the uh, Jewish, Christian, and Mesopotamian traditions from which Genesis 6, 1 through 4 derives, the Apkalu traditions. That's the the target of the biblical polemic in the first four verses, really the first five verses of Genesis 6. Uh, The writer is targeting Babylonian theology Mm -hmm. with that. And then the third set is what happened at Babel. And this is where Deuteronomy 32 comes in. We know the Tower of Babel story, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, you know, it's, it, you know, it's kind of boring, but we tell it in Sunday school because the kids like it, you know, there's no <laughs> theology here to see, so does not move along? You know, we never seem to find Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, and I'll confess, I didn't see it until I was a PhD student in Hebrew studies. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, there's a very coherent reason why I never saw it, because I was reading English Bibles.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, <laughs> that's just the way it is. <laughs> you know, nowadays we have some English Bibles, ESVs 1, NRSV, NLT, a handful of them, that actually incorporate the Dead Sea Scroll reading of Deuteronomy 32, eight into their English translation. And then wow. you see the theology. But Deuteronomy thirty-two eight nine 9 ESV roughly says this, you know, when the most high, and again, that's not a brain teaser, we know who that is. <laughs> When the Most High divided up the nations when he fixed the boundaries of the nations he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. Mm. Most, you know, the traditional Hebrew text has sons of Israel. Sea scrolls say sons of God and so does the Septuagint which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. The translator whoever did that had a different text than the traditional Hebrew text. Mm. He had one that read Bnei Elohim, sons of God, otherwise, you know, angels of God or some, some such kind of heavenly person, heavenly entity language. So what, 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 what happens there is in verse 8, God looking down at what's happening at Babel, because that's when he divided the nations, when he fixed their boundaries. Deuteronomy 32, eight is describing the Babel event. That's a rebellion. They're supposed to overspread the earth. Humanity doesn't do that. You know, we know the story, you know, from Genesis 11, this, the confusion, of the languages, the scattering of the people into nations, which were listed in Genesis 10, the chapter right before Genesis 11. And when God does that, he says, okay, you don't want me to be your God. You're not going to listen to me again. We had the fall. We had the flood. Now we got this. Let's try that out. Okay. <laughs> let, 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 let's give you what you, what you apparently want. You want autonomy, or you want to, you know, worship some other god? Whatever, whatever it is, you don't want me, or else you'd listen. So God divorces them. He divorces humanity. He disinherits them. He assigns them to lesser spiritual beings, lesser members of the heavenly host, the sons of God, who become their placeholders, their administrators. I mean, God intends that they be governed well, according to His own good character. And how do we know that? We know that from Psalm eighty-two. Because these are the guys, this is the third set of rebels, these are the guys that are getting castigated, blown to bits verbally in Psalm 82, when God says, you know, how long are you going to basically enslave your populations and sow chaos among them and destroy your people? How long are you going to keep doing that? And then he gets down to verse 6 and says, I said to all of you, you're gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, but you're going to die like men, hmm. you know, God sentences them to destruction. Now, you know, we know from the passage the, the way it ends. The psalmist, you know, puts his two cents in there at the end of the psalm and says, "Rise up, O God, and take back the nations." Mm-hmm. It, it's a reference to reclaiming what was lost, what was disinherited at Babel. And we know from, from other passages, this is an end times or an eschatological judgment. And the New Testament is consistent with that as well. So it's often in the future, but God has sentence them to destruction. God gave them existence. He is the lone creator and he can take it away. And he says, at some point you're going to die like men. You know, so we know that God wants the nations ruled well, but that isn't what happens. They, you know, they sow destruction and chaos. In Deuteronomy 32, if you keep reading, if you After verses 8, you know, you know, I should mention verse 9, what happens right after Babel, after he disinherits humanity, what does God do? He doesn't give up on the plan of Eden. Verse 9 says, but Israel is Yahweh's portion. You know, mm-hmm. Jacob is his of inheritance. And, and Israel doesn't exist yet. Well, God solves that problem. And it's a foreshadowing because in the very next chapter, what happens? God calls Abraham
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he starts over and he makes a covenant with Abraham, part of which includes the line that through you and your seed, all of the nations, these other nations that I just disinherited and that that basically formed as a result of this judgment through you, through your seed, they're going to be blessed. So God hasn't forgotten about them, but this event, the Babel event frames the entirety of the rest of the old Testament Mm -hmm. Yahweh against the other gods who become corrupt in, in their job duties. They also solicit worship, which they're not supposed to do. This is where we get. This is the Old Testament explanation for where we get other gods, where we get other pantheons. Because by the time you hit the end of Genesis 11 with Abraham's family, they're they're polytheists, they're idolaters. We're like, where'd that come from? Out of the <laughs> blue? No, it came back from the what happened to Babel. Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. But again, that's the part we never read because we're reading English Bibles that say that the, the most high divided the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel, who didn't exist yet.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: <You know? laughs> but this is what we get you know this this is what we get and i can't be too harsh because i was i was there once too and i mean mm-hmm. i wasn't a newbie i was a doctoral student before i ran into this before you had to read it in hebrew it's like holy cow what's that <laughs> like what in the world is going on there and and, and once you see it, it 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 becomes the touch point for what scholars call cosmic geography mm-hmm. a sacred space versus space, and nations belonging, being under dominion of other gods, and and Yahweh having His own, and you know everything that just plays out. This is where Paul, or look, before we even get to the New Testament, Daniel ten, Prince of Persia, Prince mm-hmm. of Greece, supernatural princes over empires. Where does that idea come from? It comes from Deuteronomy thirty-two, which is Babel. And and, that's, and Paul, it, Paul, you know, principalities, powers, thrones, rulers, authorities—they're all terms of geographical dominion. Where does Paul get that? Well, guess what? Yeah. He gets it from Deuteronomy 32. It's very consistent. So when you see it, you can't really unsee it. The problem is ever
1: seeing it. Right. Well, I was going to say, thank you for that succinct, (laughs) absolutely. Well, it wasn't real succinct, you know. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's
2: so far reaching. Sure, exactly. in, In what it does. It explains a lot of strange passages in the Old Testament. In you know, the name, why does Naaman want dirt after he's healed? Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, You know, Mr. Elisha, can I take dirt back to Syria? Well, sure, go ahead. You know, load up the mule. Right. It's because of cosmic geography. He, he has decided he's going to worship Yahweh and no other. So he, he wants he wants ground associated with with Yahweh hmm. to take back to Syria because that's unholy ground. Right, it's under the dominion of Ramon, hmm. another deity. Hmm it just it makes perfect sense, you know, again, on its own terms, you know, and there are lots of passages like this that we mm-hmm. just sort of read over, never hear preached, you know, where if they are preachy, you skip that part because it's just weird, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense, but it's all, it's all there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's all part of a matrix of ideas, a worldview that, that we need to recover so that we can understand more of, of the Bible, you know, what, what's going on in it.
1: I was going to say, I love the, 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 I don't want to say it's like a catchphrase, but the line you use is if it's weird, it's important in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, was, I was going to say that it, you, when you come from, uh, this is to an audience, not uh, when you come across, you know, th- these ideas that uh, Mike just laid down, all these weird things start to make more sense is what he was saying. Um, and one thing that sprang to mind um, during the apportionment and when God, um, Yahweh, uh, says that he's going to, you know, have his own lineage and his own people distinct. I, I was wondering the doctrine of election, because I know you've talked about it a mm-hmm. little bit. Does that play into it? Because um, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say you're probably not a Calvinist, so you don't think of uh, <laughs> the doctrine of election in the same way that they well, might or.
2: Yeah, the doctrine of election is, I think, especially in the Old Testament, has been fundamentally misunderstood. Election is important election is about access to the true God Mm -hmm. Israel alone had the oracles of God to to steal that line from Paul in in Romans 2 It's about access to the truth about the true God that you only get when you're because this this God has chosen you He's elected you to receive the, the correct information He's entered into a covenant with you not because there was anything special about you but just because he decided to do that he decided to create you in the first place after Babel so, so I'm not giving up on Eden I'm going to create a new people I'm going to go to Abraham and his, his wife is perfect because she can't have kids mm-hmm. so that, that there's no question that Israel's existence is a supernatural event
0: mm.
2: and I'm going to choose this people and their posterity to, to enter into a relationship to you know we're gonna we're gonna kick start Eden in this way I've disinherited everybody else we'll get back to them but it's gonna be through this elect group that we do that and, and it's about access to knowledge, and you say, well, how can you say that, Mike? Well, there's this little thing called the exile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's probably like a third of your Bible, okay, a third of your Old Testament. Because because if election meant salvation, then you got real problems. Because most of the elect, Israel. I mean, I always you know, I ask the Calvinists, was Israel elect? Oh yeah, of course. Of course, Mike, you idiot. Of course they're <laughs> elect, you know, they'll show you all these verses and I, and I know they're going to use those verses to reinforce their doctrine of election. Good, good. That's what I want you to do. Because, okay, you're sure Israel was elect? Yeah. Well then, um, how did, it, how did so many of them, the, the bulk of the nation become Baal worshipers? Mm-hmm. Do we have Baal worshipers in heaven? Nope. What about the Shema? The Lord our God is, I mean, you you see it implodes like in in, in 10 seconds, I can destroy it. Just just, just with that one question. No, we don't have Baal worshipers in heaven. The Lord is a jealous God. Okay, this is why he gives the Shema. This is why he gives Torah. you know, Mm -hmm. it's so contrary to everything. So if you define election as salvation, you cannot explain the exile without having Baal worshipers in heaven. And if you have Baal worshipers in heaven, why would God send them in exile? Isn't it Okay going to okay. get there anywhere right you know you know it, it just doesn't make any sense but when you define election as access to the truth you're chosen to have access to the truth but you still have to believe it. hmm there's there's still believing loyalty you believe it and because you believe it you live a certain way both to draw other nations to the truth you're a kingdom of priests Exodus 19 verse 6 you're a holy nation this is why you were created You draw the the attention of the Gentile, those who have been cast aside at Babel, back to the relationship with the true God. And you also, again, show your loyalty to the God who created you supernaturally and saved you because he entered into a covenant with you. Mm -hmm. You don't earn your salvation by keeping Torah. You live a certain way because you believe that Yahweh is the God of all gods and you will worship no other. And you believe that for some reason, he has decided to enter into a covenant relationship with you. You believe that that's your faith. Mm-hmm. And because you believe you will live a certain way and you will not worship another. I mean, you take, and, and it's fundamentally about that. I mean, David was a screw up. I mean, he commits just about every sin under the, under the, you know, the heavens <laughs> except he never, there is no ambiguity. There is never any point in his life when, when he falters about who he worships, who the true God is. Yep. There's actually a question mark on Solomon here.
0: Mm hmm.
2: Okay, but not David. Not David. He is the man after God's own heart. And I think that's why he's labeled that because he is consistent in his loyalty. He can be a screw up in just about every other area. And he is, but he doesn't have the kingship removed from him because he never wavers on who the true God is. Again, it's a very consistent theology, but what Calvinism does is they'll 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 make it about salvation instead of access, you know, to the truth. And then there's still this responsibility to believe. So no, I'm not a Calvinist, but I'm not opposed to the idea of election. I just think it's been fundamentally misunderstood. Sure,
0: mm. that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, we we kind of I kind of sit on that same place where you are too. You know, um, just that we well we, we the term I've come to learn is immediate theology is what they call it where. you're kind of standing in the the middle there but so um i wanted to ask a specific question which i know you're probably expecting (laughs) and it's in reference to our wonderful friends the nephilim yeah
2: our our good our good buddies yeah (laughs)
0: they make their way into everything it seems um so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but there's so much fun to talk about um and and i so, a lot of our listeners understand the term Nephilim they understand kind of basics of it what would what would be your description of how they and I don't want to make this a long super long long thing but just how they came about and um and then I have a follow up question with that as well
2: yeah in unseen realm i mean you, you you actually have the there's a question about the point of origin that's that would be genesis six four and then there's also this question about, well, what about after the flood? Nephilim after the flood, because you get that in Numbers 13, mm-hmm. you know, specifically verses 32 and 33. You have the Anakim spotted in the land who are from the Nephilim, okay. who were, we guess were supposed to be wiped out by the flood. You know, they obviously have that question. So a, a, initial point of origin, as I talk about an Unseen Realm, there are basically two ways to read this and honor the, the, the supernatural character of the passage. It's very clear that the Nephilim are spawned. By the sons of God, that—that's what the language says. Sons of God went into the daughters of men; they bore them, you know, children. The, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Whatever, you know, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, I mean, it's—it's it's pretty clear, and it's assumed, you know, in, in other places you know, in, in the Old Testament. So the Nephilim again are, you know, unusually tall. This is sort of the mark of their, you know, strange origin. Uh, I don't think they're freakishly tall, you know, like super duper giants or anything like that. You know, and people can read Unseen Realm for why, you know, uh, why that is. But but this is this is the mark, and so you know, you can look at it and say, well, that language refers to direct cohabitation. You could also look at the language and use Abraham and Sarah as an analogy, and that is, we're not told how God opens, you know, Sarah's womb or enables you know, her to give birth. Okay. We, we know that, that, you know, her, her children are from Abraham, of, of mm-hmm. course, but you know, God does something supernatural to raise up a seed. And so there would be some who would say, well, maybe we should just take the, the sexual language of Genesis six, one through four, sort of euphemistically, or, or you know, in, in some way, just to say that, you know, there was this belief that other, other gods, other rivals, you know, other, other members of the heavenly host wanted to be like their maker and wanted their own populations on earth, wanted their own imagers. And so they did something, you know, other than direct cohabitation, other than becoming, you know, human in form taking on human flesh and, and, and doing this sexually. Maybe maybe the language is just there to, to telegraph the idea that they did something and we have these rival populations spring up before the flood that turn out to be monstrous and enemies of the people of God and try to exterminate Israel later on and so on and so forth. Well, okay, you know you, you have that discussion in, in ancient literature. You actually have references to the notion that uh, other rival Supernatural beings wanted their own imagers. You actually have that language, again, in, in a couple texts, you know, because people are, are asking the same questions in the ancient world as we, as you just asked. But either way, <clears throat> the sons of God are the point of origin, you know, for the, the Nephilim. And, you know, after the flood, there are basically three ways. Now you, could, you could even throw in a fourth, uh, but I, I, in the book, I talk about three ways. Three explanations that have been sort of offered for how we get Nephilim after the, the flood: either the flood was local and not regional and not gl- not global; you could have a repetition of, of the incident of the act, you know, based on the grammar of the verse in chapter in verse four; or you could have someone in Noah's family essentially being a carrier. You know, you could, those are, those are the three ways that were discussed in antiquity. But regardless of that, they 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 produce bloodlines. That are go by different terms: Anakim, Rephaim, Amim, Zamzumim. These are the historic, uh, you know, giant enemies. They're they're described as unusually tall Philistines. Again, one of them from Kaftor. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the language is consistent, and you know, you're, you're, you have people now that say, oh, Nephilim just means fallen ones. Well, if it meant fallen ones, it wouldn't be Nephilim; it would be Nofilim, those who fall upon somebody else, like a warrior. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I mean fallen, like like spiritually fallen. Well wouldn't the sons of God be the ones who are doing the falling and not the Nephilim? And by the way, it would be spelled different as well. It'd be Nephilim. <laughs> hmm. Okay. And that this isn't what we have. And, and, and even if, even if you want to argue the point, well, I, I'm so glad to meet someone who's smarter than the translators of the Septuagint oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> because none of, none of them, none of them ever use pipto, which is the, the Greek word for to fall in their translation of these terms. They either transliterate them, or they translate them as gigantes, giants.
0: Mm, yeah.
2: So why are you so much smarter than they were? You, you know, and, 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 and to boot, Peter and Jude, of course, know all this material and they tie it in with the, the, the Greek version of, of, of these events, the, the, the Titan story, where the Titans, the offending supernatural beings, you know, who, you know, father other supernatural beings who are giants, a second generation of Titans they send the first generation to Tartarus, the abyss, as punishment. Mm. And guess what? You know, that's where Peter and June, or Peter I should say, in Second Peter, has the angels that sin not sent to hell, but the verb is Tartaro, sent to Tartarus. Mm. I mean there there's literally no way to get around this. And and, and I and I would say, look, the, the the kicker here is in the last since two thousand ten, when Amar Anos, who's a cuneiform scholar in, in Helsinki Came out with a great article called "On the Origin of the Watchers," where he ties in the Genesis six stuff not only with the, the, the Dead Sea Scroll stuff and the Enochian material that is witnessed among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but he, he ties all that back to Mesopotamia. There's a Mesopotamian backstory here that accounts for literally—this is no exaggeration—literally every element of Genesis six one through five.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: wow. the God, the daughters, men, the giants, okay, everything, it, every element of it. And we know that the, the writers uh, during the second temple period who produced the Book of the Giants from Qumran, who produced the Book of Enoch also again found at Qumran. We know they were familiar with this material because guess what? They actually quote the material. You know, they, like Gilgamesh is mentioned by name, he's a giant. Again, in Mesopotamian and Ugaritic literature, he's a giant who is Lord of the Apkalu, which is one of the Sons of God, that's the Mesopotamian Sons of God equivalent. I go through all this stuff. In Unseen Realm, the Book Reversing Hermon, the Book Demons is going to have its own chapter on it. Mm -hmm. But here's here's what it comes down to. If you interpret Genesis 6, 1 through 4 as anything other than the sons of God being supernatural beings, you are willfully, deliberately, intentionally ignoring the Mesopotamian context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. By definition, you are interpreting it out of context Mm -hmm. to strip away, to demythologize the supernatural element. You know I, I, I didn't write it I can't help it okay but but that is the those are the data mm-hmm. and and by by definition if your commentary that you're depending on for your some other view like the Sethite lineage that commentary you're depending on if it's written before 2010 and doesn't interact with the cuneiform material that was marshaled by Amar Anus in his recent you know, article where he collected it all then, by definition, it's obsolete. Your mm. commentary is obsolete at that point. Wow. You can just put it on the shelf and not look at it. Look for something better that takes account of the data. If you know, I, I really, I, I, I understand. Who, it, you know, it's it's freaky stuff. Okay, it's weird stuff. I, I get it. It's it's supernaturalist in orientation, so I understand why it troubles uh, many people, even Christians. You know, who are selectively supernatural. Well, you know, Mike, you can't explain to me how Genesis <laughs> six one through four works. You know, how does that work with biology and DNA? And right. my answer is, I don't know. Can you explain the incarnation to me? <laughs> That's right. Can you explain the hypostatic union? <laughs> Can you do that? Can you explain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Can we explain the concept of this of salvation? you know, how this, this person's blood, it's human blood, isn't it? How that atones for sin at a, at a cosmic level. Can you explain that? Where's the DNA that does that? Is, is that a gene that does that? I mean, can you explain that? Can you explain the Trinity scientifically to me? The reality is that nothing, none of our core beliefs are explainable with the tools of science yeah. zero. Okay. And it's about time that the church wakes up to this. It is, it is inconsistent methodology to pick the supernatural things you like mm. and that you think are respectable or that you desperately need and let all of the other ones that you don't like go away and mm. dismiss them and sit in judgment upon them. I mean, frankly, an atheist has better hermeneutics. Right. <laughs> at that point at least they're consistent right. I mean, they could be consistently <laughs> wrong but at least they're consistent they don't believe any of it. <laughs> yeah you know it, but but this is the situation that we find ourselves in and, and so no i i can't explain lots of things but i can tell you what the text says mm-hmm. and, I, and if you don't want to honor this then i don't ever want to hear you talk to me about interpreting the bible in its own context
0: again mm-hmm. wow i'm glad you said all that because a common question.
2: I, I'm, I can be the one that gets in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I can just point him to
0: you. Uh, but uh, but what a common question I get. That's the two heads right over there. You know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Throw the first stone at him.
0: <laughs> now, I mean, I think it's been so dismissed and not looked at a, in in the proper light and way. You know, just from the original language, and then as you said, the Mesopotamian influence that is needs to be yeah, applied yeah. to it.
2: They- Genesis 1 through 11 is shooting at the theology of, of the nations, of the pagans, on basically every paragraph. Hmm. It, it's just one of the reasons why all that stuff even exists. It tells you why the world is the mess that it is, mm-hmm. and it tells you who's to blame. And, and, and in so doing, it'll take a story like the Apkala, who the Mesopotamians thought were awesome, oh, this is great. This is how Babylon became the top dog. You know, this, these divine beings preserve the knowledge of civilization for us. And they didn't, you know, survive the flood because of this cohabitation stuff. And, you know, this is why we're awesome. And you Jews are just dirtbags. You know, we conquered you and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, the, the writers, you know, the, the text of Genesis 1 through 11 is saying, well, okay, yeah, you know, that that's, that's what you think. That might be what the world thinks, but here's the truth. This was evil and sinister and wicked and it doesn't reflect the will of the most high, the most high. Does... And the most high isn't going to let it sit there either. So in chapter 12, we call Abraham and it's game on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was going to say one of the things uh, you say all the time, just to jump back a little bit before the question that Turner asked is, <clears throat> and I think it's really important and kind of, Harkens back to the thing of if you, the listener, someone who has never heard this before, when you understand and dig into it, and you know uh, Mike talked about his book, which is just phenomenal and so eye-opening, uh, unseen realm. Um, but I love how you always say, like, just let the text be what it is. And yeah, um, I know one of the things Turner might get a little upset at me for saying this, but I, I know you said on multiple occasions that. You know, it's not a science book. We shouldn't derive science from it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it is what it is. So, you know, I, I just think it's very um, important to, again, remember what it is, what so, the Bible is and what it isn't. I'm so and, mad at you right now. <laughs>
2: think, think, think about what, you, what you're doing here. Okay. You're trying to convince an audience of, I would guess, predominantly Christians mm-hmm. to just let the Bible be what it is. Yeah. Now the, the fact that that that's an argument to be had <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. and
2: one is a little disturbing.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I mean, we
2: really think about it because what, what, what we do, and, and again, I'm, this isn't anything sinister. It, mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. You know, we, we get scripture filtered to us through traditions, you know, of just pop into existence at you know, different periods of time for different reasons. And there's no cabal of people spinning, you know, scripture this way or that way to, you know, like, like it's the, uh, the Illuminati hermeneutic or something, you know, <laughs> it, it's not that. It, it, it just happens. It just happens as, as history moves on. And, and we, we, we start to think of the Bible as a book written to us instead instead of for us. It's certainly written for our benefit to give us truth, right. but it wasn't written to us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's written to somebody who lived thousands of years ago. And if, if you want to say something as, as eminently logical as, well, the writer probably had a reason for writing it. Like God probably had something in mind when he prompted this guy and prepared this guy to write this book. Like it wasn't random. It's not channeled. You know, it's not like a, the Orangia book or something. Okay, (laughs) like the writer actually had his brain engaged and there was a reason to write it. Well, his reason is gonna be something known to his audience and he's gonna use, you know, the the language of his day to communicate to his audience. Mm -hmm. So this is why my, my one string banjo is If you want to really understand scripture, you have to read it through the eyes of the ancient writer and his ancient audience. Mm -hmm. It's not going to answer your questions because it's not written to you. Right. It will give you truth that you could apply and and, and may answer some of your questions, but but you may have to apply its truths to other questions you have because you aren't the immediate audience. Mm -hmm. So just let it be what it is figure out what what its truth assertions are and then apply them to your life. But part of that is worldview. Mm -hmm. See, the ancient writer and his audience, they were supernaturalists. You know, and, and that's a good thing because like God is behind (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> like, you know, I mean, if you believe these simple theological propositions, like there is a God, well, if, if there is, it has more explanatory power for why we have everything and, mm-hmm. you know, why do we have something rather than nothing and, you know, what's the cause and effect and, you know, all these ideas that have been defended really well, even by non-believers for thousands of years, you know, the, the coherence of, of theism. Mm-hmm. Well, then your next question is, well, can that God actually do anything? And would he do
0: anything? Yeah, right.
2: And again, it's very easy to argue yes and yes. And well, could one of those things be to prepare somebody to write something later in his life and to like nudge him along when it, when the time came can like to produce something, then actually look at it, make sure he didn't screw it up. You know, could, could God do that? You know, well, if you compare it to like creation, I, I, that's pretty small potatoes. You know
0: <laughs> right, right,
2: Yeah. I mean? It's that, are simple ideas that propel or, you know, all the, all the other ones. The other ones extend from the basic idea of, of theism. So, right. you know, supernatural stuff might be strange to you. It, it might be something that you can't address with the tools of, of science. Well, that, that's wonderful news because you're not supposed to. Right. That isn't the point. You, you can address it with the tools of coherence. Okay? You don't have to put it under a microscope then you know, do, 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 does, does the truth proposition of theism and that, those ideas that extend from theism, are they sustainable or not? And the answer is yes. You know, again, we don't need a, a, to, to cling to some faith statement for that. We can go to some secular philosopher who just knows how yeah. to argue yeah. Yeah. very well. You know, I mean, it, it this is where it is, but, but, but again, we, we somehow, I hate to say it this way, but a lot of times we don't even think about what we're doing. <laughs> you know, when it comes to the Bible and reading it and studying it. We don't, we don't, you don't think about what we're doing or, or or what what's sort of behind it. And again, there's nothing in my book. You know, I I, I say you know, Unseen Realm has, has been a huge success. You know, it's it's well over a hundred thousand, you know, units sold, which oh, is wow. for a book with footnotes is wow. unheard
1: of. Yeah, there's a lot of footnotes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not magic you know, it's, it's not lofty, unobtainable stuff. And it isn't magic. It, Mm -hmm. it actually is getting, you know, you back in touch with a simple set of ideas and seeing how scripture propels those ideas Mm -hmm. and and links them together. Um, so you go up to the reviews on Amazon, most of the reviewers on Amazon, over a thousand reviews, they're they're not scholars. I mean, almost none of them are because scholars are going to review it in journals and it gets reviewed there too. And It's been reviewed well. Mm-hmm. but most of the people on Amazon they're just normal people
1: mm-hmm.
2: who just who just like the Bible they just they've suspected that there must be more to it and their suspicions are correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So well, we know, are it, so
0: glad that you wrote it. <laughs> it's been awesome for us. Uh it definitely has fed a hunger and it's answered and it not only did it answer questions but it created more questions which are which is always a good thing in my mind. Yep. Yeah, um, so I want to segue because we're running out of time here, and I don't want to, I don't want to. I know you have a limited time for today, um, so th- I have a simple question. You could probably answer this with with a yes or no, and then it, it'll segue. Sure. It's a perfect segue into um, how I wanted to uh, kind of wrap things up here. Sure. The question is, is: do you believe that Hillary Clinton could possibly be a, repti- a reptilian shapeshifter? <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: I'm I'm not an ancient alien theorist. So no. <laughs> I think she's just. A- uh, she's just an unfortunately corrupt woman <laughs> that has really bad ideas, <laughs> you know, and, and honestly that she's not alone there, you know, it's, yeah. it's, and I, I mean, unfortunate in it, in the right way. You know, it's just, it's sad.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's sad how, how some people's hunger for power can affect
0: mm. yeah.
2: just the decisions they make, you know?
0: So, so, we are, uh, our podcast is theology, politics, and culture. That's the main three that we try and stick around. We do, we venture out in other areas too, but on the t- topic of politics, um, you know, you always are being asked, you know, oh, tell me about the Nephilim, tell me about, you know, the, the divine <laughs> Which we counsel. just did for <laughs> right, which an which hour.
2: <laughs> they were killed off in the time of David, so we're, none other, we're we don't have the reptilians and the Nephilim. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: That's perfect. So, uh, so the Democratic Party is not an extension of the, no, the no, corrupt, no. Nephilim <laughs> divine council. Uh, well, that's good because that you know, means
1: we can, we can handle it. We can them. wipe that up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do the you
0: think? Ideas. What do you think about Trump? Tell me a little bit what you think about him, just if you want.
2: I, I think I don't think he's terribly complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he, Trump is in this. I think initially he was in it for Trump. Yeah. you know, because he, he, it's, it's business. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do what I think should be done and I'm not going to let anybody stand in my way or tell me differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and he's used his, you know, his negotiation skills, which are, you know, they're really understandable. He always starts from an exaggerated place knowing that when he pulls back, it'll look like the middle. I mean, it's just, it's it's not complicated. It really isn't. And and part of his personality is he loves to play the game. He loves to troll people that he knows don't like. And if you slight him personally, he's just going to go after you. So he's very ego driven. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily ideologically driven but I do think he does have the country's best interest in mind and you could say well that's only because of of business and money and well okay maybe it is that simple but I'd still rather have that than someone who wants to destroy its institutions yeah Yeah. you know I so you know I I didn't vote for him the first time I will vote for him the second time but really only because um you know he the decisions he has made and you could say again maybe for some of them he didn't have the right motive okay I'll, I'll, I'll give you that but you know they they have they've resulted in you know greater individual liberty they've resulted in more prosperity uh, I, I I see him demonized in all sorts of falsifiable ways uh, which which I really don't like mm-hmm. um, so you know, part of me is, is, is hoping that you know he, he wins the second time around. What I'd really like to do is I'd like to see all of the corrupt people on both in both parties exposed.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I'm actually hoping for impeachment because then we get a trial. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the only reason I, want to see it, I just want to see the house of guards fall. I want to see the swamp drained and, and you know, if it takes somebody like, like a, a Trump who, very obviously uh, in on many occasions, acts in self-interest, then, you know, so be it, you know, if, if we were at war, I would want Alexander the Great. Right. Right. You know, it, in spite of his bad character, that our, our odds are probably pretty good. I'll take what I could get. You know, we're in American politics. You know, it's, you know, none of this is about, the kingdom of God. So I, on, on the people on the right who are the, the, the vociferous Trump supporters, I think they need to remember that too. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, Trump is a messianic figure. You know, he's not the root of David. Okay. He's, 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 <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know what Jesus could have done to be clearer when he said, you know, look, fellas, I'm going to use small words here. My kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> you know, it's it just, I don't know what else he could have said to, to distance himself from earthly kingdoms and political schemes. And, and so we ought not on either side, we ought not conflate the set of ideas that we like and the candidates that promote those ideas with some, you know, the ushering in of the millennium or, or some utopia, mm.
1: you know,
2: what we really get in politics is we get utopian fantasy right on the, on the left it's just because we're so intellectually superior that our ideas are better than anything that could possibly you know move their way into your pea brains <laughs> so just step aside and surrender your individual liberty to us you'll be better off right and on the right you know it, it's it's about ob- obtaining you know power and status and and being situated in such a way that you you use Mm -hmm. other countries and other people to maintain that position of superiority, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but both schemes, you know, in, in, in really fundamental ways, they're trying to reverse Babel without God.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow.
2: They're trying to reinstall utopia on entirely human terms. Yeah. And, and, oh, doesn't it sound good, but guess what folks, when you have utopia, there's there's always one question. What do you do with dissent?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And both sides, the historic answer has been, well, you crush it. Right. Okay. <laughs> and my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the vision, you know, of the, of the kingdom of God. So, you know, I, I'm I'm glad for the for the things that you have benefited individual liberty and religious liberty um, and and economic prosperity because that creates you know, stable families Mm and stable families create stable societies. You know, religious liberty is, is just an inherently, you know, good and noble thing. Sanctity of life. I mean, all these things have, have risen and become stronger in the Trump administration. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can argue about why and what the motives were, Uh, you know, I, I understand that that's a discussion to be had, but at the end of the day, I don't think we'd have any of those things had, had Hillary Clinton won. Because oh, okay. again, she's been very public in her policies that that there's no way they would have led to the same outcomes. Absolutely. So I think that's a very safe statement to make. You know, and and for that reason, I'm I'm glad uh, he's there. But I, I you know, I, I'm I I, I I call myself a political atheist because I don't trust either party, <laughs> and I think the the, dem, the Democratic Party is is just there's no return there. Yeah. Uh, the Republican party is sort of following suit. They, they, they lack the the moral gumption in many cases to oppose bad policy, even when they benefit from it. When they, when an administration changes, when they should say, no, this was a bad idea, we'll reverse it. But instead they just capitalize on it. That, that's not good character. Yeah. Um, so they, they have their problems. They, they, they there's weakness there. There's a you know, propensity to want to, again, capitalize in in the wrong way on certain things the other side does. So I, you know, I look at the whole system and think it's severely broken. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it could be fixed other than a constitutional convention, which I fear because of the way the internal, you know, we now know that the deep state is real. You know, if there was ever a constitutional convention that would just strike fear into me
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: because of the the whole unseen manipulation that goes on. Um, You know, so I I don't know. I don't know that there is a solution other than (laughs) we look past it, you know, and and look to the Lord, you know, for, you know, do what we should be doing as individual Christians. We live above these parties. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we hold principle. We hold principles and positions that are consistent with sound exegesis of scripture in its own context. And we, you know, we minister to other people. We treat our neighbor like, like we should. And we tell people about the gospel and we suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's really how we should live. And there's no political party that's going to give that to you.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Very well said. So Mike is not on the God Emperor Trump bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) Neither are, neither are we, but, (laughs) uh, yeah, yeah, I was
0: turn. Yeah.
1: anything else or
0: man? No, I'm, I am so stoked that just this whole conversation has been amazing. Yeah. I'm going to go back and re-listen to it and, and pick up on everything that I may have missed. And we've been trying not to fanboy too hard. Right. <laughs>
1: so hopefully that didn't come out too much, but uh, I we are, uh, I'll speak. I, for you. I,
2: I, you know, I, I'm always going to, I could just hang up the, the phone and go back to my wife and kids and be cured of that.
0: So. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'll speak for myself that, uh, Very just so humbled and blessed that you uh, would give us the time and uh, the attention and, you know, to come and speak with us and just uh, can't overstate that enough of, you know, how much of a joy this really was. And um, so thank you on behalf of me and I'll let Turner yeah
0: what he's going to say um, we're going to put all of your links to to your podcasts and all of your your data and information online on our show notes so any listener that wants to research and connect with you they can do it that way i want to encourage everyone to go out and buy the unseen realm and read it it will it will expand your understanding and, and really challenge you and equip you better deep and, and yeah, i was gonna say and a deep... if you're
2: if you're not if, if you're not uh, used to reading books with footnotes, you, know, you could read Supernatural. That's the, the mm-hmm. light version of Unseen Realm. Just <laughs> has right. the core ideas. But chances are your you know your audience is ready for the meat. But uh, we don't yeah. want to forget about Supernatural. Yeah,
0: sure. or just get them both and make, make his <laughs> yeah. Christmas better. Oh yeah, you, you could. Yeah. <laughs> you and then uh, and then, uh, I go and pre-purchase his book demons which is available in April and you can get that on Amazon or wherever books are sold but uh Mike is there anything you want to finish up with do you want to take a minute to talk about the awakening school of theology or Oh
2: yeah yeah we're we're actually just days away from moving uh to Florida from Washington so we have a 3000 mile road trip uh, ahead of us which I hope will be fun <laughs> Um, hope the, uh, hope the pugs will take it, <laughs> uh, you know, so we have that coming forward. Uh, and you know, re- the reason we're going is, you know, we're starting this school. I mean, I, I was asked to start a two year, uh, program at Celebration Church in Jacksonville, which is a part of a large network, a uh, church network of 20, 25,000 people. And they have seven or eight international campuses too. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to create a program that no matter what people are doing in ministry at any level, in any phase in the local church, uh, they, they can go through this program either physically on the campus. It's going to be one night a week or distance ed. uh, they get a good grounding in, in biblical theology and what I would call postmodern apologetics. Mm. So the first year we go through the content of unseen realm and then we, we drill down into it and stuff that's beyond the book. And then the second year uh, I actually haven't decided what topically I will cover there, but it'll be, you know, a combination of drill down the theological topics. We'll do, you know, again, what I call postmodern apologetics, just an example, like the whole zeitgeist fantasy about Jesus right. ever existed and all that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, the fringe ideas, alternative worldviews, that sort of thing that a lot of the young people, you know, they've just grown up on it because people who want to learn stuff, They're not going to know about peer reviewed journals. They may not be able to afford college, uh, you know, or or know what classes to take, even what questions to ask. So what they're going to do if they want to teach themselves, is they're going to go to YouTube and the internet Mm -hmm. and there's just a whole lot of garbage out there. (laughs) And so when they, when they run into stuff that their church or their parents didn't answer or won't or can't when they do ask the question, they, that produces within them the erroneous conclusions that, Oh, you must be hiding something or you don't know, or I've stumbled onto the real truth. (laughs) No, actually you haven't. (laughs) There really are answers, but you can't find them in many cases on the internet. So we're going to try to put a dent in that and, uh, you know, just try to equip people who care about thinking well about scripture and being loyal uh, to to Jesus, loyal to the gospel and be able to pass it on, you know, teach them well enough so that they can pass it on uh, through the books, through conversation, through the school, and whatnot. So the school starts February 10th. You can go to schooloftheology.com and find out how to register for that. But it starts on February 10th. So that's why we're moving. Wow. Right around the
0: corner. Right around the corner. (laughs) That's awesome. And if you're in the Jacksonville area, obviously, I guess you could attend classes. But do they have online classes for people like myself? Okay. You
2: can do both what what the way the way it'll be structured is February 10th is a Monday so tonight or the, the teaching night this at least for this semester this term will be monday nights for those who attend live and then the we'll record everything and that'll go into post production so that 2 weeks after the live class takes place those who are taking the course by distance will get access to the to the material nice. so it'll be like 2 week intervals um, and we'll just follow that course for 15 weeks. And then you know, the first year is 30 weeks, but the first 15 weeks will end around, I guess, the end of May or something like that, however the calendar works out. And then the second part will be in the fall and we'll actually have a, a, a first half starting in the fall too. So I'll probably teach two nights a week, uh, coming in the fall and then we'll add the second year once we're through the whole course of the first.
0: Wow. Awesome. Well, I think this is going to be an amazing tool for the church and, uh, I'm hoping that many people can actually uh, join in on that and uh, be a part of it. So we'll put the link to that if that's okay. Also in the show notes, so people mm-hmm. can uh, sure. can find that. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, Mike, it's been amazing. I can't thank you enough for joining us and spending the time with us today. And uh, we are going to be praying for you the best. And we look forward to more of your literary uh, contributions to the church and to those that are, that are in it. And, uh, we just thank you again for spending time with us.
2: Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe some other day we'll have you back again if you have the time.
2: Yep. Yep. Just let me know once we get uh, into February or or thereabouts. After after you settle, <laughs> yeah. <up>. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna be going dark for a
0: few <laughs> I completely understand that, man. Yeah. And from what I understand, pugs are tough dogs, so I think you'll be okay with them traveling. Right. Yes. <laughs> Uh,
2: Hopefully, we, we don't expect any any real problems.
0: So yeah, well, God bless yep. you, man. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Yep. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to know more, you can visit us on the web at alloutwar.us or you can find us on Twitter at AllOutWarCast. Hey, thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.